This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know this week. What a treat. I had the incredible pleasure and really honor of speaking with Rabbi Beryl Wine. For those who follow the history of the American rabbinate or who are fans of great Jewish orators of the 20th and 21st centuries, Rabbi Wine is a pivotal actor in both of those conversations. And more than that, he is also an incredibly innovative and pioneering scholar in the fields of Jewish history, creative Jewish multimedia where he's produced films and all kinds of groundbreaking methods for communicating Jewish content and his love of both Judaism and Jewish history to people all over the world. Rabbi Wine has given probably thousands of history lectures and I often joke to people when I'm describing this conversation that Rabbi Wine has had like five different lives when it comes to his professional career. He was a lawyer and a rabbi in Chicago, then a rabbi in Miami, then ran the Orthodox Union, then became a rabbi and head of a yeshiva, founder of a yeshiva in Muncie, New York, then ultimately moved to Israel, the rabbi of a shul there, almost really a legendary career and almost larger than life. I had the privilege of speaking with Rabbi Wine a couple of months ago around Thanksgiving time when he was visiting his daughter who lives in America and he's certainly getting up there. He's at it, thank God, at an advanced age, an age of incredible wisdom and perspective and again, it was just one of the ultimate honors that I've enjoyed since the beginning of this podcast, the hour plus that I got to spend in conversation with Rabbi Wine. A reminder again to reach out at jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com with any speaking engagement requests as well as comments, suggestions, and so forth. Follow us on social media at jewsyoushouldknow on both Facebook and Instagram, spelled out fully at Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening. Please tell others to do so as well. Show them how to do it if they don't know already as we continue growing this podcast audience. And now to my conversation with legendary rabbi, Jewish figure, Rabbi Beryl Wine. We are here with Rabbi Beryl Wine, longtime noted rabbi, historian, world traveler, and speaker, and really one of the incredibly respected entities in the broader Jewish world. How are you, Rabbi Wine? Thank God, fine. Wonderful to have you on, and uh, one of the esteemed rabbis that we've been privileged to feature here on this program. And. As we do with all of our guests, we kind of take it from the top. And I know you've had quite a few uh, stops on the journey, much like the, uh, the Jewish people in the uh, 
in the desert, <laughs> many, many stops and, and signposts along the way. Um, but where did it all start? Well, I was born in Chicago. And uh, I lived in Chicago for the first 30 years of my life. I uh, was in the yeshiva in Chicago, based medical tour for 11 years. And that's the Skokie yeshiva? Now it's Skokie. Then it was Chicago. I, I received smicha the year that they moved from uh, the old west side of Chicago to Skokie. And uh, I uh, was uh, an attorney at law in Chicago for nine years. But even during that time, I had a uh, Shabbat uh, position as a rabbi for a minion that existed on the north side. And uh, I was uh, pretty much content that I was going to be a uh, an attorney, even though I come from uh, many, many generations of, of rabbis. I was going to ask, what was, the, what was the history of your family? How did they end up in Chicago and, and when? Well, my grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Tzvi Alevi Rubenstein, uh, was a student from uh, the yeshiva in Valozhin. And uh, when Valozhin closed in 1892, the head of the yeshiva, uh, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, intended then to go to Jerusalem his son, Rabbi Chaim Berlin, was already a rabbi in Jerusalem, and he intended to uh, live out the rest of his life in the land of Israel. However, when he came to Warsaw on the way, he unfortunately suffered a debilitating stroke, and then uh, a few months later passed away. And my uh, grandfather uh, then uh, married the niece of Rabbi Tzadik Akoin of Lublin, famous Hasidic Rebbe, and they uh, continued to go to Jerusalem, to the land of Israel. My grandfather uh, came to uh, Jaffa, to Yafo. Rabbi Cook was the Rav then in Yafo. My grandfather knew him from the yeshiva in Valozhin. And uh, after my grandfather founded the yeshiva there in uh, Jaffa, the yeshiva that, uh, whose building still exists. It's one of the landmark buildings in old Jaffa. And uh, after a period of time, uh, uh, my grandfather... Uh, he had already a lot of family, three sons and three daughters, my mother, and uh, they moved to Jerusalem. And he was on the uh, rabbinic court of Shmuel Salant, who was the uh, rabbi of Jerusalem. Rabbi Salant was the rabbi for 70 years in Jerusalem. To be a rabbi in Jerusalem in 70 years is almost miraculous. And uh, then uh, the situation in the land of Israel then was desperate poverty and disease, and it, it just was absolutely desperate. So, uh, like uh, many others, uh, my fa grandfather was sent to the United States uh, 
to try and raise money to help the uh, population in Jerusalem. And uh, he arrived in Chicago in 1911, and somehow he stayed in Chicago, and he brought his family over. And he was the Rav in the uh, B'nai Reuven Synagogue in Chicago. And first he was a Rav in South Chicago, then in the B'nai Reuven Synagogue. It was 2011, I mean, uh, 1911, the last time the Cubs had won the World Series? No, the, the Cubs... Uh, had won the World Series in 2016. But before that? Before that, they would, I think they won in 1906. 1906, okay. <laughs> Something like that. But uh, I, my grandfather didn't move there because of the Cubs. <laughs> and uh, what happened was that he eventually founded uh, the yeshiva, the Beis Medish Torah, the Chicago yeshiva, which now is the Skokie yeshiva, he's founded it in his own uh, front room. Really? Yeah. So your grandfather was the founder of the yeshiva? Yeah, he had three students. And uh, the dormitory was one of the bedrooms, and my grandmother was the cook, the kitchen. But in the, within three years, it grew into a, uh, an official institution in 1921. Uh, the, the, she was going to mark its 100th anniversary uh, in the in near future. And uh, he uh, was one of the Russia yeshiva there till his death. And uh, my father was in memory was a student of Rabbi Shimon Shkop in the Grodna Yeshiva. And uh, after the First World War in the 1923-1924, he left Grodna and came again to the land of Israel. He was in the first uh, class of uh, Yeshiva Merkazarav, which Rev Cook founded in Jerusalem. And that uh, class... Uh, contained almost all geniuses. It was uh, all the, uh, completely outstanding scholars and people with brilliant minds. And my, my father was there until 1929. Who were some of the future rabbis in that class? You had the future uh, rabbis, chief rabbis of the state of Israel, Rosh Yeshiva, rabbis. It was, uh, it was uh, really spectacular. And... Uh, my father left in 1929. Two reasons. One reason was the uh, danger of the Arab riots. 1929 was a bitter year. The Hebron massacre. Pogrom in Hebron that uh, almost destroyed the Slabotka yeshiva that was there. And uh, the second reason was because Reb Shimon Shkop, who was his rabbi from Grodna, came to. Uh, New York, and uh, Dr. Bernard Revel, the head of uh, then Yeshiva uh, Vinskochonon, brought him to New York, and he was the Rosh Yeshiva at the Ritz at Vinskochonon. And Shimon sent a letter out to all of his former students that they should come to New York to uh, the Yeshiva. 
And uh, my father always told me that Rip Shimon told him in 1929, told them that Europe was done. There was no future for the Jews in Europe anymore. And that the future lay in the land of Israel and in the United States. And that therefore the students should come to uh, New York and try and build a Jewish community in America. So my father came to New York. There was a Jew in New York by the name of uh, Israel Rokeach. Rokich, who uh, owned a soap manufacturing company who, from Covenant yet. And it was a, his soap was the staple in every Jewish home. Half the soap was blue and half the soap was red. So you broke it in half for milchiks and flashiks. And uh, every Jewish home had it. And he, he was a man of means. And by this time, the uh, depression had hit the United States. And uh, he offered a prize of $500 to the uh, most outstanding student in the Yeshiva Sabenu Yitzchokonim. And my father won the prize of $500 in the midst of the depression. The average American worker made then $200 a year. So my father had some money, and Dr. Revel, who uh, loved my father, and he knew every rabbi in America, Dr. Revel. He's one of the great heroes of American Jewry that really never got his due. So he told my father that there's a rov in, in Chicago that has three daughters, and that my father should go to Chicago and meet them, and he said, one of them you'll like. Did he say which one? <laughs> so he ended up marrying the middle daughter, my mother, Hester. And uh, he stayed in Chicago. He really an exceptional orator. Then in Yiddish, later in life, even in English. And uh, after a period of time, he uh, was the rov in one of the largest congregations in Chicago. So that's how we came to Chicago. Who were some of the early influences in your Torah career? I know the Skokie Yeshiva or the, uh, what was its predecessor has cycled through many of the great rabbis uh, of America over its history as its leading lights. Who were some that uh, you, you were most connected well, to? When I, was, when I was a child, yet, there's no doubt that my grandfather was the greatest influence on me. He passed away, I was 10. But uh, I, I studied with him, and I went to public school. You know, there was no uh, was no day school then. So I went to public school, but in the afternoons afterwards, uh, I learned with my father, and I learned with my grandfather. And then uh, after the war, and uh, starting in 46, they formed a... Uh, junior high school and regular high school that was affiliated with the yeshiva, was affiliated with the Associated Talmud organization. And uh, that I attended, uh, they put on from the seventh grade on, I was taken out of the public school and sent to the, uh, the today it's the Ida Crown Jewish Academy. And, uh, in the morning, we were in the yeshiva. In the afternoon, we went to the academy for the secular studies. 
in the yeshiva, I had great rabbeim. I heard so Kaplan and then his brother, Rabbi Israel Mendel Kaplan, and Rabbi Rogoff, and then Rabbi Kreisworth in 1947 became the Rosh Yeshiva. Rabbi Chaim Kreisworth? Chaim Kreisworth. So I was, uh, I was in the, in the, that was the yeshiva, it was a wonderful place, and it was a wonderful yeshiva, and we had uh, great young men and great teachers, and we saw great people, and uh, that inspired all of us, uh, it pushed us, uh, it made the difference in our lives. And that was like a golden age of that yeshiva. So uh, and I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time to meet the right people. And yeah, what's, what's interesting is that you chose to go professionally into law at first. Well, what happened was uh, simply a matter of practicality. I got married, and that was at a time when uh, nobody realized that somebody would pay you money if you married their daughter. <laughs> so everybody had to fend for themselves. My my father, naturally, uh, being in the rabbinate then, had uh, no resources. I guess and, the five hundred dollars uh, had run out. Oh yeah, <laughs> a long time ago. So he told me, he said, uh, you know, I have no, I, you know, you got to make your own way. And he said to me that he had a uh, an acquaintance, really, it was a distant relative that had a law firm in Chicago, and that that uh, lawyer agreed to uh, hire me as an associate in the law firm if I passed the bar. So uh, I uh, I was able to obtain a scholarship, uh, and I went to DePaul University Law School. I was originally accepted to the University of Chicago Law School. But the University of Chicago Law School did not have night classes. It only had, you had to go all day. And I was still, uh, wanted to stay in the yeshiva as long as I could. So I went to DePaul, and I went night school and summers to DePaul. And I got my law degree, and I passed the bar. And uh, at that time, the... Uh, Orthodox community in Chicago began to dissolve because the, the neighborhood changed. There was a absolute uh, flight of Jews uh, to uh, the north side, the suburbs, etc. Is that when West Rogers uh, Park emerged? That's when it started to emerge. And uh, there were 42 Orthodox synagogues in the Lawndale area, in the old area of Chicago. Only about six survived. And uh, many that survived only survived as what was then called traditional synagogues, which had mixed seating, but it had Orthodox rabbis as being the rabbis. That was a phenomenon in Chicago and other communities. Today it's uh, per se, but so that was the wave of the future, and uh, so I, I just didn't see any future for the Orthodox rabbinate, and I didn't want to become a conservative rabbi. Many of the uh, children of Orthodox rabbis in Chicago ended up going to the uh, Jewish Theological Seminary and became conservative rabbis because they wanted to remain in the rabbinate, and that was so this be going to be the only game in town. So I, I became a lawyer. 
and uh, I, uh, I dabbled in real estate, and I uh, was a partner in a uh, small uh, manufacturing firm that produced uh, parts for uh, cameras and tape recorders, etc. It was very interesting. In the Shabbos, I was a rabbi, and uh, it remained that way for, uh, as I said, nine years. Baruch Hashem, my wife and I had four children. And I was uh, pretty much, uh, we were pretty much established in Chicago. We had our ups and downs, but uh, a lawyer does not have <laughs> ups and downs. Did you enjoy working in that profession? Was that fulfilling no. for you? No, I did not enjoy it because lawyers see people at the worst. Yeah. Nobody comes and says, you know, I would like to uh, do a favor to my friend. Would you help me? No. They come right. and say, you know... Uh, uh, my, my partner is cheating. Uh, I want to buy this building. I mean, I wanna, it's always competitive. And I, I don't demean it, but that, that's the world. But uh, it had a very negative effect on me. I didn't mm. like it at all. But uh, I didn't see any way out of it because I had four children. And I had to support the family. My wife was uh, teaching. Together we made a living. There so were times that we, we uh, did very well, and there were times that, that I didn't know where the next uh, check was going to come from. But uh, Baruch Hashem, I thank God, I, we've certainly uh, weathered all the storms. My wife uh, had a very terrible disease from which she recovered miraculously. She was written up in all the medical books, and she lived for uh, 50 years afterwards. So, uh, you know. Wow. So what changed at age 30? What changed was I had a very good friend, really a bosom friend, Rabbi Arya Rotman, Louie Rotman, who was a uh, classmate of mine in the yeshiva. And really we were very close. And he was a, uh, I cannot describe the loyalty that he had to Rabbi Christworth. Now, Rabbi Christ was in 1955 left the Chicago Yeshiva and became the rabbi in Antwerp, Belgium. Yeah. But he would come for some reason uh, in the summers, he would visit Chicago too. And whenever he came to Chicago, I naturally went to see him and et cetera. And he would always would say to me, he said, you know, the Jewish people have enough lawyers. You, you should be a rough. I told him, Rabbi, you know, I, I have this family and I don't see any Rabbonus here and I don't want to uproot everybody. But he pushed. He, if you knew him, he was a persistent person. He didn't uh, know, did not exist in his vocabulary. So he sent Rabbi Rotman to Miami Beach and he became the rabbi in a very small congregation, a storefront. And Rabbi Rotman was a rov there for seven, eight, nine years. And then uh, one, uh, really this time of the year, Thanksgiving in America, uh, Rabbi Rotman shows up in uh, the uh, office of uh, the business that I was then running with uh, partners. And he says to me that uh, 
Rabbi Christ would insist that I should be his successor at Miami Beach, and that Rabbi Rotman said that he would not leave the office until I promised him that I would at least be a candidate for that rabbinate. And he said he's moving to Long Beach, but that I should go to Miami Beach. So I, uh, Rabbi also was a very persistent person. And I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to beat the Thanksgiving traffic home. So I told him, I, uh, yeah, he made me shake his hand that I would be a candidate. I never really gave it very real serious thought because I figured they're not going to take me and I'm not going to Miami Beach. But uh, I went home and I spoke with my wife. I told her what happened. So she she was a very wise woman. Women are much wiser than men. And uh, she she said, well, uh, you know, we should definitely consider it. Uh, because I think you'll be happier, and if you'll be happier, the family will be happier, and uh, the whole speech. So I didn't do anything for four months. And then uh, one day in May, Rabbi Rotman called me, and he said, okay, you're one of the three finalists for the position. (laughs) And believe me, the position then was not much of a position. There were 39 families in the congregation, and it was a... Uh, a storefront that had uh, no money and really no people. But they said, come. Uh, so I, I went there uh, for my tryout. And uh, I stayed up all night. And I learned with the people. And there I mean, it was a very, and then I got up early in the morning and I walked the entire beach. And Miami Beach was and is beautiful. And uh, I was intrigued by it. And then uh, Rabbi Rotman, uh, the truth be said, rigged the election. <laughs> he had proxies from people, etc. And I was elected by the overwhelming vote of 20 to 19. <laughs> and so uh, we packed up. I, I, I sold my... Uh, Law practice, I sold my business, I sold my home, I sold everything in two weeks. Oh my. No matter what anybody gave me, that was it. Later on, the Lord repaid me uh, many times over. But uh, at the time, uh, we, I really went out with nothing, practically nothing. When we moved to Miami Beach, and uh, it was a wonderful congregation, Beth Israel, still exists today. Sure. And uh, we were there for uh, nine years. The children were raised there. It was a different time in the United States then. We never locked our car. We never locked the front door of our house. And the the congregation grew. I mean, it grew to 250 families. And not only that, but uh, every winter uh, I got to know and see uh, all of the great men in the Jewish world who all came to Miami Beach. Some came to uh, rest from the New York winter. Uh, some came to raise funds for their institutions. But I, I was on a, uh, can't say intimate, but I was on a, on a, on a close uh, relationship with uh, the Ponovich the Satmar Rebbe, 
with uh, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenevsky, with Rabbi Meishem Feinstein, with Rabbi Ruderman, uh, with Rabbi Lamb, uh, with Dr. Leo Young. I mean, I saw everybody. And uh, that made a great difference to me. It helped shape my life, my understanding of people. And all of these people were extremely kind to me. I mean, the Satmar uh, Rav, uh, I built a mikveh in the shul, I built, um, the shul building we built, we built a beautiful shul building which still exists. And as an adjunct, there was a mikveh that we built there off the shul. And so we needed it for Friday nights and for Yontav, etc., because the main mikveh was not in the neighborhood. Anyhow, you know, when you build a mikveh, there are always people who say that the mikveh is not. It's like building an Arab, right? <laughs> the naysayers are there. That's one of the great lessons that I learned in my life, is that whatever you do, there are naysayers. Either they say, we don't need it, or you're not the one to do it, or it's not right. There are many reasons that lie behind naysayers. And most of it I attribute to their own insecurity and uh, partially to jealousy. But in any event, so there were, uh, especially Hasidim uh, used to come down from New York, and they would, uh, without knowing, they couldn't believe that I didn't have a beard then, I didn't have a black suit. Uh, they couldn't believe that this, uh, you know, American uh, young gotch is going to build a mikveh that's going to be good. <laughs> it was against their uh, grain. But uh, when the Satmarov came, so he didn't say a word. We, we, we had a conversation, but he didn't say a word about the mikveh. But the next morning he went and he immersed himself in that mikveh. And that ended the whole story. And I thought to myself, what a genius and what a kindness. And uh, I had many other kind things from him. We never discussed uh, politics, the land of Israel, Zionism, secular, nothing. And then uh, all the other great rabbonim that were there, Rabbi Neuberger uh, from Baltimore was there. I can't tell you the list of people that I knew. And there were other young rabbis in the area, Rabbi David Lairfield, who's the world's greatest expert on Gitten. And uh, so he was a rabbi of Miami Beach with me. I knew him from Chicago. He had his family from Chicago. His father was one of the three original students of my grandfather. And uh, I knew Rabbi Feldman from Atlanta. And we traveled many times to Shabbatonim together. Uh, it was a glorious time. The only problem was that there was no uh, high school for my daughters. I have three daughters and one son. So my son we sent away to my brother-in-law, Rabbi Arnold Chaim Levine, of blessed memory, the head of Tel's Yeshiva. Tel's, yeah, sure. And Yeshiva that I helped found when I was uh, in Chicago. And... Uh, my oldest daughter we also sent to live with one of my uh, brother-in-law's family in Chicago, the Kellers. 
And then my wife said she's not going to send the youngest two. She, you know, she was very distraught that we send our children away. So because of that, I had many offers there for rabbinic positions in the New York area. I really didn't like New York. I still don't. <laughs> not the people, but this, this too, too much, too big, too this, too that. It's just, uh, it's not the way. Uh, Life was meant to be lived, but uh, I had to consider it. So uh, I was uh, offered many positions, and I was offered positions in Toronto and in uh, New York City and in different neighborhoods in New York, etc. But uh, none of them uh, appealed to me. But I was offered to be the executive vice president of the uh, Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America. Rabbi mm. Samson Weiss was then retiring and moving to Israel, and I would be his successor. I uh, naively thought that I could make a difference on the uh, national scene to affect uh, orthodoxy, to help it. So I accepted that position. I was also offered a position by Rabbi Moshe Scherer to be uh, his associate uh, in heading the Agudis Yisrael. Uh, you might be the only one who ever had those two options together. <laughs> well, I had a third option. Then uh, Rabbi Dr. Belkin, who was the head of Yeshiva University, offered that uh, I should become the dean of uh, Yeshiva University. Oh, my. I mean, my story with Dr. Belkin, who was a great man, also didn't get his due. But uh, when he saw that I wasn't very enthusiastic about that position, so he said to me, I'm going to add a perk to you that will sway you. And so he said, I'm going to assign a young man every day to park your car. To move your car. <laughs> so I came from uh, Miami Beach. I didn't know what in the world he was talking about. Well, you know, no alternate street parking then, you know. And <laughs> you never had trouble getting a parking space in Miami Beach at that time. But uh, even with that perk, I didn't accept. And I, I started with the Union of Orthodox Congregation. What yeah, did you hope uh, to accomplish there? I hope that we we would build a network of congregations that would attract the new generation and that uh, the union would uh, be an educational and inspirational movement and not just, you know, a bureaucratic organization. But I was unsuccessful. I could never do that. I never got past it. And, Why? Uh, I'm not an organizational person, so, uh, you know, after a while it becomes uh, turf and, uh, you know, it's always the small picture, not the big picture. You never see, you know, you don't see what's going on. It becomes the political parties in Israel. That's what it becomes. Is it the nature of things that are just large institutions that, that that's what happens? Uh, it's just the nature of people, the nature of people. You see that Moshe Rabbeinu bemoaned it. How can I carry such a people? 
that only are interested in the small things. The Kotzka Rebbe said, you know, uh, I want that my chesidim should uh, see heaven and they want that their cow should give more milk. So that's the nature of people. So there are people that are very good at organizational things, but the most of the time, the Jewish world is not advanced organizations. You know, you look at what has been accomplished in America and in Israel, you see it's only individuals doing things outside the box that have pushed the envelope ahead. Anyway, after about three months in the job, I realized it was not for me. But I had signed a five-year contract, and I never liked to go back on my word willingly. And then uh, Rabbi Rosenberg, uh, who was the head of the OU Kashras, and who was a great man and, a, and one of the great people that I met in Miami Beach and worked with, he uh, passed away suddenly. And that was a tremendous vacuum because it was the Kashras that funded everything. And uh, naturally, there were uh, immediately uh, different groups, factions, people that uh, wanted to take it over. And uh, there was a very wise uh, man by the name of Nathan Gross, who was the head of the uh, lay committee on the, on the Kasher's division. He, he saw the big picture always. And he came to me and he said, you have to slide over. You have to become the head of the Kasher's and give up the, uh, the bigger sounding uh, title of the executive vice president. Just slide over and you'll save the Kasher's and you'll save the OU. And you'll be able to do more for the Jewish people than you're doing, than you can do in the other position. And I agreed with him. And that's exactly what happened. And then for the next four years and nine months, I was the head of the Kashas division. We did very, very major things. I brought the OU into the meat business. Uh, we expanded, uh, we added hundreds of companies, uh, uh, we, we did uh, wonderful things, but it's a, it was a very tough job. Very tough job. Why? Because there's too too many interests involved. First of all, the job involves patronage. You have to assign people. You have to hire people. Everybody's got a brother-in-law that needs a job. There's a lot of money involved. And uh, no matter how much money the Kasher's division raised, the other divisions could spend more. It's like the United States government. <laughs> and in order to, uh, there, there are private Kasher's organizations who in order to justify their existence have to say that you are no good. I don't eat OU, okay? Everybody in America is eating OU no matter what they tell you. Because the OU controls all the basic ingredients and ingredients. Yeah. There's no CD organization that has its own glycerin plan to make shortening. But it's, it's convenient to say that the other person is no good and I am good. The Satmarov told me, he said, <laughs> he was aware of the whole thing. He told me two things. 
this is after Miami Beach when we were both in New York. So his sit-in his, wanted to uh, piggyback, uh, that's the wrong term, but uh, to piggyback on, on our hexer and to make a super kosher baby food, which was the same baby food that we were making. And the company uh, that made the baby food did not want that to happen. So therefore, we could not agree to it. So I went to him and I explained that to him. And he said uh, he understood. And then he told me, he said, what can I do? He said, my chesidim need parnosa, he said. So uh, the, that's what happened. And he also said, uh, Aser to Aser. So the Gemara says, Aser bishvil shetis Aser. So he used to say, Aser the other person so that you'll become wealthy. Uh, very sharp. He was very sharp. He was very clever. And he was very realistic. He never he never gave me any of the baloney, you know, that they're going to have 20 more Mashgichim or something. He never said that. Because he knew that was nonsense. He was very honest about it. And because of that honesty, I was able to help all of the Chesidah Because he was honest about it. If they need Parnassus, I'm going to help you. What years was the, uh, what was this, in the, were you in the OU? 72 to 77. And then once your contract ran out there. I, so I told him, I gave them notice that I was leaving the, Three years before I left, I said, go somebody else. I'm not going to do this anymore. I couldn't stand the commute. We had moved to Muncie. My wife wanted to live in Muncie because she had a sister that was there. So when I came to Muncie, we were in a neighborhood that did not have a synagogue. The main synagogue was Rabbi Tumbler's Shul, about a mile and a half, two miles from where we were. And... Uh, I started to uh, teach on Shabbos. Uh, some uh, neighbors uh, that lived in our, na- in our end of the woods. And eventually, uh, we were 40, 50 families, so we decided we'd make a shul. I became the rabbi even when I was with the OU. And that shul grew into congregation-based Torah. And so uh, when I left the OU, I had a full-time rabbinate already going in Muncie. It was a wonderful shul. It's a wonderful shul till today. They have a wonderful rabbi, Rabbi Gottlieb. And uh, we built a beautiful building and expanded it, etc. Again, at its heyday, it was a few hundred families. And then... uh, I wanted to make a yeshiva, so uh, I uh, made Yeshiva Shari Torah, and uh, the shul uh, leased uh, part of its land to the yeshiva. We built the building next door, and I headed that yeshiva for 20 years. It was a high school and a base medrash and a smicha program. I have over 30 Talmidim that are in the rabbinate and in Chinuch, etc., all over the world. It was a wonderful place, and the yeshiva is still existing. What made you want to start a yeshiva? I really wanted to be my grandfather. I wanted to do what he did. 
and uh, it worked out very well because if I had a bad day in the shul, which can happen, <laughs> so uh, the yeshiva was an escape valve, and if I had a bad day at the yeshiva, then the shul was the escape valve. <laughs> what if you had a bad day at both? Never happened both at the same time. <laughs> and why did you choose the name Shari Torah? The name Shari Torah was the name that my Zeta gave the yeshiva in Yafa. And then uh, I, I started, uh, I was always interested in Jewish history. When did that start? Well, it started when I was 10 years old. I've always read all of my life. Until now, I can no longer read. My eyesight is not there, but I always read all my life. And I was fascinated. I was fascinated by, uh, you know, Rashi, the Rosh, who were they? I was uh, 10, 11 years old. I realized that there had to be a person behind the print. So who was he? And uh, the yeshiva in Chicago then had a magnificent library, special almost a building for a library at about 30,000 volumes and had a full-time woman librarian. And so uh, I was not that adept at uh, sports. So in the, in the uh, hour uh, between uh, the morning and afternoon uh, Seder, I uh, drifted into the library. And this uh, fine woman, Mrs. Mishkin was her name, she uh, she took an interest in me and she said, this is a good book, this is a book, they read this, read that. And I learned how to read in Hebrew very well too, because we, we learned Hebrew in the yeshiva, and we learned Tanakh in the yeshiva, and there was a class in Jewish history in the yeshiva taught by a professor and so uh, my, I was always developing this interest. You know, when I was in Miami Beach, I wrote a sefer, Chikrei uh, Alocha, that Moshe Rav Cook published. And then uh, when I was the Rosh Yeshiva in Shari Torah, I took uh, the sheer Chloe that I said every Friday on the Masechtas, and I wrote them up, and then Moshe Rav Cook published it in two volumes, and you named them Sechtas Atalmud. So I was into writing. And then I had an idea. I knew Rameir's lot of it, very well. And I proposed to him that I would write a Jewish history book, then Art Scroll, which then was still pretty much a fledging company, uh, that they agreed that they would publish it. And I wrote a, I wrote a try for survival, and then I have, and then I continued to write. Uh, I've written uh, maybe twenty five books in my life, and uh, I gave lectures on all topics, but especially on Jewish history, and uh, they were recorded, and those recordings became very popular. And in fact, for many years, it was the. Uh, major source of income for the yeshiva after the banquet and tradition and uh, was invited on a very regular basis to travel and speak places and did a lot in uh, those 20 years. How many tapes? Because I, I remember those old tapes when I was in high school and, and beyond. Uh, people would pass around the tapes and the catalogs. 
How many were there? Was like hundreds, nine hundred. Eleven hundred, twelve hundred. Twelve hundred of on the Jewish History series. Yeah. Where do they live today? Are, are there any of them? Have they been digitized? There's a foundation that I created, Destiny Foundation, that still deals with all lectures and tapes and everything. And it, uh, it, it, today they're MP3s. You just download it. But uh, every day, yeah, every day we uh, distribute tapes. We distribute these lectures. And I keep on adding to it because of all of the different series that I'm constantly doing. Do you have a favorite period of Jewish history? I like uh, what's going on now. <laughs> That's a surprising statement from someone who's become so synonymous with history. My dear, you live in the present. History informs us, but you live in the present. So then what about history is so, is so animating to you? Well, I think that once you have a knowledge of Jewish history, you have a different perspective of the present. You understand current events far more differently. And especially in our time, I, you know, I think, uh, listen, you see what happened to us and where we're at today, so and you see the fulfillment of prophecy in front of your eyes. So I, I think that's a great thing to make it boost a person's faith. And it also gives you perspective, everything that goes on, you know, all of the terrible things that go on and uh, the uh, disagreements, and it, it all happened already, right? It, you know, don't get nervous. You didn't invent the wheel. What's it been like? Your lifespan has traversed the broadest renaissance of American Jewish history and also seen the flowering of, of the land of Israel. What do you see when you look out at the landscape today of the Jewish world? Well, I, uh, I think that uh, American Jewry is in a lot of trouble. Uh, I don't think that American Jewry will escape the fate of all of the exiles. If you look in the words of the prophets, you realize uh, that they did not provide for an exception. And you see it coming. You just see it coming. It's going to be very hard to be an Orthodox Jew in the United States of America, if not this year, but certainly within 10 years or 20 years. And uh, that, that has consequences. And generally speaking, our future is not in the United States. Our future is in Israel. All of the problems and all of the difficulties. Israel is where you can have a truly Jewish life. And you moved there at some point, correct? I moved there in 1993. I moved permanently in 97. I was fortunate enough I became the Rov in the congregation Beit Knesset Anasi in Rechavia, which is a wonderful shul. I have a wonderful associate rabbi there, Rabbi Yitio Goldberg. Oh, of course. And I, uh, you know, I'm still functioning and, and there are lectures and shiurim and it's, it's uh, we're, you know, like, thank God. And I've also, uh, I've also produced movies and documentaries. I really felt that uh, I'm happy that I came to movies late in life because I would have come earlier. I'd be a movie director. <laughs> fascinating medium imaginable. What What do you like about it? What do you like about it is you have a chance to uh, to create something from nothing. 
And you what? have a chance to influence people, you know. Our movie on Rashi, uh, I cannot remember, well over a million people have seen it. What's your goal with the movies? That's my goal. A million people should see it. Two million should see it. Three million should see it. And experience what? What do you want them to walk away with? They walk away with the sense of the greatness of the Jewish people and the greatness of individual Jews. And again, of the fact that the Jewish world did not begin in the 2000. It's a long, old story. And we've been there before. We made a series of documentaries on Jewish history in the 20th century. Faith and Faith also. Hundreds of thousands of people have seen them. It gives you a sense of what's going on. Most people don't know that. It, not that they don't know. They don't see themselves in any sort of perspective. You're born, you make money, you live, you die, goodbye. That's not the perspective. It doesn't give life meaning. That's why everybody is dissatisfied. You know, one of the things that I find so... There's never been a time when people have been as wealthy, as healthy as they are today, and as dissatisfied as they are today. I mean, if you read the papers or uh, you listen to the news, I mean, this is the worst place in the world. It's true in Israel, and it's true here in the United States. You know, nothing is good. You know, the old bad joke about the, the waiter that came over to the three Jewish ladies who were eating lunch, and he said to them, is anything all right? <laughs> That's our world. Nothing is all right, because you don't see it in perspective. You don't know that your grandfather didn't have a job in the Depression, and there was no food on the table. If you knew that, you would bench, you, you would uh, say Birchat Tamosan differently. But you don't know it. Do you see an interest among the young generation today in learning these things? Are you hopeful? I'm always hopeful. I'm hopeful that they become simply hopeful because there is a young generation. Who would have thought? I look at my own family. I'm an only son. I cannot tell you how many descendants I have. The Lord has blessed me. I mean, you imagined. I never imagined it. And the yep. great thing about the young generation is that it becomes older. And when it becomes older, usually a corrective measures kick in. Life does what it's supposed to do. Great picture, you know, that the Nevi'im promised us and everything that they said is coming true in front of our eyes. Get on a plane and come to the land of Israel and you see it in front of your eyes with the what the prophet said, what Yeshaya said, what Skarya said, what Smania said, it's there. So what do you want? So you don't like the political party too bad. You don't like it. Who cares? Yeah, but Ryan, what are you doing nowadays? Are you spending most of your time still in Israel at the, at the shul? Are you working on any other projects? I'm really here only for a week or two. I'm going back to certainly a time. I hope as long as I can to continue to serve in my synagogue, and I'm, uh, I just have authored a book, uh, 150 essays of mine on life and religion and society. So that book is going to come out, and I'm working on another book. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm trying to keep busy. Where can people learn about all of, all of your writings? And, and At the Destiny Foundation. Destiny Foundation has everything about uh, all of the books and the tapes and everything that people would want. They have, we have a web website. And the other website is rabbiwine.com. You go to that, and, uh, you know, it's all there.
Rabbi Barrowine, thank you so, so much for your time. I, I cannot thank you enough. What you've seen and experienced in life has uh, been incredible. And uh, your insights are invaluable. Thank you, you be Matsuyah. You be successful in everything. Thank Amen. You. Thank you very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.